You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5x5 Network. You're listening to episode 272 and I'm your host, Brittany Martin. Today is a special episode, listeners, because I'm welcoming back a past host of the Ruby on Rails podcast, Sean Devine. Welcome back. Hey, Brittany. So good to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, Sean, can you please reintroduce yourself to the audience? Sure. Yeah. So I, uh, well, as it relates to the show, I hosted for, I don't know, about two years. I forget the exact number of episodes, but it's it's more than I would have guessed, like 75 or 78 or something like that. But anyhow, I, I used to host this show and um, I've uh, I've had a, a pretty interesting career, sort of a combination of, of programming and and both um, uh, starting and running smaller companies and being an executive in, in bigger companies. So it's uh, it's been a pretty fun uh, journey for me. I currently am the uh, founder and CEO of a company called XBE here in Chicago, um, where I, I lead the company, but I've also done a lot of the programming. And, uh, you know, I had a, a sort of twisting journey to get here from the beginning of my career. But anyways, it's great to be back uh, on the show and look forward to the conversation. Awesome. Well, I so appreciate it. When I was learning how to code, you were the host of the Ruby on Rails podcast. Mm -hmm. And a big thing for me is as I was commuting to and from work, or as I was studying in between boot camp lessons, I would be listening to you. So you, whether or not you know it or not, you were definitely mentoring me as I was learning (laughs) to code. So well, that's, that's, that's fun. (laughs) It's fun to hear. Yeah. So Sean, what is your developer origin story? Yeah, sure. So I, um, so the, the first half of my career, I, I didn't program. Um, I was uh, I went to Babson College out of uh, high school and majored in finance and entrepreneurial studies. And, uh, and then I kind of did what you'd imagine if you go to a business school and major in business, which is like I got into business and uh, had a sort of variety of roles from smaller companies, uh, one that I co-founded and then another that uh, was venture-backed that did did pretty well and then uh, ended up in um, through sort of a series of events in big companies and uh, a couple of executive spots in logistics businesses. Anyways, eventually I ended up leaving uh, one of those companies to start my first uh, company um, uh, sort of later in my career uh, called Partage. And at Partage, we had big ideas about how we would um, sort of automate and innovate in areas around pricing of a certain mode of transportation called partial truckload. And none of the uh, software that existed uh, in the space at the time could handle kind of what we were interested in doing. And um, I was down in North Carolina at a a sort of a training session for some software that we had licensed to provide the backbone of the business. And I got fed up um, at the session because there was just no way it was going to provide the infrastructure that that we that we could uh, rely on and we were leaving this session and I got in the car with my business partner and my, and my now wife, I don't think we were even married at the time. And, um, and right in that moment, I said, you know what, I, uh, I'm capable enough in various areas, I can figure this out. And at, I don't know what, I was probably 31 or 32 and had had a, a pretty successful career to that point. I said, I'm going to figure this out. And, you know, 10 years later, I, uh, uh, you know, I sort of haven't looked back. So that, that's how I got into programming, which is sort of a, a strange, uh, strange thing to reminisce about. But that's, I feel, uh, that's how. 
I feel most programmers have somewhat of a strange, twisted way that they've got into it. I've definitely quoted you before about a full stack developer is not necessarily someone who knows front end and back end, but someone who understands technology and business. So I love that you have that background because I have a similar business background where I fell into programming as well. Well, when I, when I was younger, I, um, so I, I think that there are sort, there's sort of an alternate version of the story, which is that when I was, when I was younger, I was sort of particularly intense. And I, I mean, I don't think that anyone's accusing me of not being intense now, but, um, but then I think it was, it was a bit of a thing. And I found myself sort of, I, I did pretty well in my career, but I would, I would ultimately burn people out. Um, you know, I just, just pushed a little bit hard and was somewhat unrelenting, I think. And um, programming was kind of a way to not burn someone else out. I, I, I think that I sort of figured that out after the fact, but the reason that I took to it is that, you know, whereas at work, if I was like three hours into really pushing on a, on a topic, like most people that I'd work with would be like, all right, you know, <laughs> enough of this. How about we break and go do our own thing? Um, but that's never really been, you know, my, my vibe. And, uh, and so with programming, I could kind of wear myself out. And, and I think that I found that a bit appealing. Um, so anyways, that, that's the, that's the alternate version. And I think, you know, kind of helps explain how I ended up bridging from business over, over this way. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. So I'd love to touch on the history that you have with the Ruby on Rails podcast to the people who aren't familiar. The Ruby on Rails podcast has been around for quite some time. So can you talk a little bit about how you got involved with it, about your hosting tenure? I'd love to hear more. Yeah, so I was uh, I was a few years into programming. So if I started about 10 years ago, maybe this was six years ago or something. And um, I had I had sort of found myself at a place where I, I felt like I was somewhat competent at that point, but, but not really, you know, not great by any stretch. And... Um, I was interested in sort of having more conversations with, you know, either people that I looked looked up to as programmers or, um, you know, people that I just found interesting. And, you know, both in order to sort of entertain myself um, and to push the limits of, of sort of how well I could keep up with um, people that were in a domain that, that used to be new to me, but then it was starting to feel familiar at the time. So. Right around then, I, 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 you know, I liked podcasts, and I noticed that the uh, Ruby on Rails podcast had gone, um, you know, dormant for a while. So I, I reached out to um, the guy that had run it, and I also reached out to Dan Benjamin at Five by Five, and I said to Dan, "Hey, if I can get sort of this podcast moved over to, you know, to me, will you know, can I host it on Five by Five? And then sort of said the opposite thing to the other to the other guys. And, um, and anyways, they both, they both said yes. And so, uh, so I, I kind of kicked off on that journey of figuring out how far I could stretch myself and just, uh, how many interesting conversations I could have. And, um, and it really delivered that it was, uh, it was great fun to do. That's great. And as I remember, when I was listening to it, you did a series of interview type shows and then it eventually turned into you co-hosting with like a weekly conversation with Kyle Daigle, correct? That's right. Yeah. So the, the show was sort of split into two. So the, yeah, the first half were, um, were interviews and it was kind of a who's who of people that I found interesting. Um, and then about halfway through the tenure, I mean, honestly, it's a little hard, as you know, to organize a sort of weekly interview with yet another new person. And, you know, for every two that were interesting, one was a little bit more challenging. And, you know, I think both to make it a little bit easier to 
schedule things and to make the show a little bit more consistent. Um, when I moved to Connecticut um, from Chicago, and I live back in Chicago now, but when I moved to, to Connecticut, I, um, I had become friends with Kyle and said, you know, why don't we, why don't we do this together? He's a, he's a fun guy and we have like a good rapport. And I just felt like that'd be a new sort of interesting place to take things. And, you know, that's how we ended up doing it that way for a while. I feel that that style of podcast has become very popular nowadays where it's two people who are doing like kind of a weekly check-in and it almost feels like you're dropping in on a phone call, but you guys kind of were ahead of the game, I feel in that sense. So <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure how ahead, but I think you're right that, that that was a genre that got more popular after that. I mean, it was a little bit popular all, all along, but I mean, I, I, I sort of understand. I like podcasts like that, you know, where you get to know a couple of the characters and sort of are used to the shtick between them and whatever sort of thread is going through um, show to show in their life. So, you know, I, I, I guess I tried to make something that was similar to what I like to listen to. Very cool. Do you have any particular favorite episodes or moments from the show? Any memories or friendships because of the show? Well, I mean, I think that my, my friendship with Kyle, I would, I would put in that category. We weren't really friends um, prior. I mean, we, we had gotten to know each other just before we started doing the show, but not much before, you know, maybe a month or something. And, um, and that ended up being a great relationship. You know, we, uh, our families got to know each other really well. And, uh, 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 you know, when he, he had kids, I got to know them and, you know, I had the little ones and vice versa. So that, that was really fun. Um, you know, there really are, are a lot of, of, um, a lot of highlights. I think my number one highlight is, uh, a guy named Milind Alvarez, um, who lives in Goa, India. He, he was sort of a fan of the show um, pretty much from the beginning, at least as I remember it. And he had reached out and he's got just an A plus personality. And um, while this was never on the air and I, I never had him on the show, um, we became friends um, just sort of over the internet. And then ultimately I hired him to help out with some things. And then um, after that, then I sort of uh, worked with him full-time on some things and then ultimately ended up um, sort of helping him build a company where he hired more people that all work for me now. And, and that was a direct result of sort of the show and the connections that it made. And uh, I was over in India for a week and a half or two weeks last year and was at his wedding and, and uh, you know, consider him one of my best friends. And, and, you know, there are some other stories that are like that, that, you know, someone just responded to the show or, or um, you know, created an opportunity to make a connection that then uh, built into something else over some number of years. And it's uh, it's fun to think back about that. That's awesome. I'm at the pretty much the beginning of my tenure with the Ruby on Rails podcast. I think this will be ex episode 17 for me. But I did speak at RubyConf Malaysia last year. And as mm. they were introducing me, they're like, this is the voice of the Ruby on Rails podcast. You probably all are familiar with her voice. And it was just like, it was very weird to see how many people who were like nodding along. <laughs> yeah. I had a, I remember I had a moment like that at um, Wicked Good Ember back, oh geez, probably about four or five years ago, five years ago. And I was uh, sitting kind of around like a bonfire, as I remember it, out in the Boston Harbor. And uh, I was sitting next to someone and just chatting about this or that. And someone in back of me said, oh man, I've never met him, but I, I know who that is. Um, cause you know, they, they recognize my voice from <laughs> hearing me, um, on the, on this show. And, and that was kind of fun. That happened, I don't know, maybe a half dozen times over the years. And I always got a kick out of that. Awesome. I love that. Well, I want to, uh, dig into your current job. So could you tell us more about XBE? 
Yeah, sure. So, so as I mentioned before, I've been in logistics in different ways for most of my career and in different um, ways. I started that company, Partage, which was a um, pretty automated partial truckload broker. And uh, before that was at Echo Global Logistics here in Chicago. And before that was at um, Conway, the big um, LTL carrier that people uh, usually know, and, and, and a, a couple of other things too. But anyhow, um, after uh, we sold Partage, I was interested in, and sort of that wound itself to the next stage. Um, I was interested in, in, in taking what I learned and and sort of building a company focused on a niche of the logistics business where um, I thought the problems were complicated and could benefit from technology, um, but that it was kind of uh, in the backwoods enough that other people wouldn't have done it yet. And found my way to construction logistics, which is what we do. So we provide uh, sort of a full platform for planning, execution, and analysis of horizontal construction projects. So that's like building roads or repaving roads or um, moving dirt or, you know, stockpiling aggregates that, you know, things with raw materials, usually that move by dump truck. And so we, we provide, uh, we're sort of a full service provider in that area. So we both provide a software platform that does all sorts of things related to what I just said, as well as provide um, logistics services, either brokering the trucks or coordinating the, the movement and planning of everything. And so, so that's what we do. Um, we are headquartered in Chicago, um, started the company from, from nothing and uh, have built it up to, to, to be a really interesting business. We um, operate in Chicago, Kansas City, and Charlotte now, and we'll, we'll expand to the rest of the country over the next handful of years. But it's been, uh, it's really been, it's, it's been an amazing experience so far. That's amazing. So how technical are your users? Oh boy, uh, <laughs> not at all technical. So, I mean, we, I think we've had around 2000 users, like uh, maybe, maybe 900 active users and maybe 2000 over the last year or so. And, um, you know, it's a mix of people like drivers, like people that drive dump trucks, dispatchers that maybe, you know, own and dispatch three or four dump trucks, um, foremen that work in construction crews like if you're driving down the highway and the highway's closed and they're repaving it those guys literally are using our software like them wow that's um, really cool yeah people that work in the asphalt plants that are up in the tower and they drop the asphalt into the dump trucks or at the quarries next to the scale or um people all the people in the office so accountants and and estimators and owners of these businesses and you know, given that our, our platform is kind of used as the hub of their planning and execution of their daily work, they all are, they all are sort of in it all the time. Um, so yeah, and, and, and uh, maybe of those 2000, there are like two that are technical, I'd say. So um, not very technical. So once you came up with the idea for the company, uh, how many, how long was the timeline until you were up and running and had real customers? Well, um, you know, like most things, there's a slightly longer story, but I'll tell the short version. I'm going to say it was about six months until um, sort of anything could be tried, like even proof of concept type level, anything. And then about a year until um, maybe a little bit more, oh, a year and change, maybe 14 months until um, we were sort of out of that proof of concept phase and could handle real transactions. And then really another year beyond that. So that would have been, you know, call it two years and change 
before we really feel you know, felt like you know kind of some version of what we are now. Um, but but you know so six months to something, one year to something more interesting, and two years to kind of what would feel like the beginning of the present day, and then it's been a year since then. Oh, that's awesome. All yeah. right, well we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor. OSCON has been ground zero to find out what you need to be in the know about the open source community for 20 years. Because software development now is essentially open source, we've expanded the OSCON program focus to examine what is driving software development forward today. Unlike other conferences, we cover open source projects no matter their origin or affiliation. Our program solely focuses on projects in areas of innovation including AI, infrastructure, blockchain, edge computing, architecture, and emerging languages. You'll hear from industry heavyweights like Holden Corral from Google, Rupert Deshere from CodeChicks, Julian Simon from AWS, and Allison McCauley from Unblock Future. You'll have a chance to network with experts and peers at many of the events OzCon offers, including author book signings, speed networking, Ignite OzCon, and our Better Together Diversity Networking Lunch. Prices start at just $9.25 when you register before April 19th. Listeners to the Ruby on Rails podcast can get 25% off most passes to OzCon when you go to OzCon.com Ruby and use the code Ruby20 during registration. Thank you to OzCon for sponsoring the show. And we're back and time to ask Sean for his advice. So as a technical CEO, what is your number one lesson to share with listeners who are headed down that path? Boy, the technical CEO path. Um, well, it's a good question. So I, I am pretty suspicious of the conventional wisdom that says that, you know, you should be not programming. Yeah, you hear that a lot. Yeah, and I mean, and this is like massively self-serving advice. So, you know, <laughs> take it with a grain of salt. <laughs> but, but I mean, here, here's why. So uh, the reason that people often say that, you know, you shouldn't spend time programming is because they say it's low leverage. And um, I just don't really agree that that's the case when your team is small, right? So when your team is small and when people are talking about the you know, leverage, they're saying, well, how can you multiply your force in order to, you know, to create much more movement than you could alone? And I think the distinction between sort of leading people and leading machines, I, I, I find a fuzzy. You know, like, like, why is it that force multipliers that are people somehow are, are more valuable um, than force multipliers that are machines? It, it doesn't stand to reason to me. So if I have the ability to sort of communicate equally well with people and computers, um, let's just say that that's true for argument's sake, then shouldn't I at any point in time be saying, well, what will gain the most leverage? right? Um, like hiring and working with people on a given problem or, you know, spending time to carefully craft my message to the machine so that they can, you know, leverage the, you know, the, the, the instructions. Call. And I don't, I don't really see a difference between those avenues. Now, I've had this conversation with enough people now to know that I am not in the majority on this one. Um, I think people find a fundamental difference between leverage that comes through people and leverage that comes through software and therefore machines, but I don't. So, you know, I guess, I guess my number one lesson is like, if, if you have, um, 
it, especially if you're bootstrapping, right? I think my advice would be slightly different if you uh, had raised a bunch of venture capital and were, you know, racing as fast as you could possibly possibly go. Then I, I think I may say something other than what I'm going to say. But if you haven't done that, if you've either raised a small amount of money or have bootstrapped the business and funded it off of the cash flow that it can produce, then I think that there's quite a bit of logic in saying, well, you know, I can gain the most leverage by by you know, uh, taking advantage of my ability to communicate to people and machines. And, um, and so if that's how you feel, don't, you know, apologize. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. So to put it in a different way as well, say you're sitting down at your desk and you have two tasks in front of you, a technical one and a business related task, the way that you currently stand, what do you feel is your default? Like which task do you want to reach for first? Yeah, well, I guess it depends on what we are imagining as a business task. I mean, I don't, I, I sort of see it as either technical or people tasks. Okay. Um, just because the you know the technical side is business as much as the people side is business to me. Yes. Um, but but it, between the two, between people and technical, oh boy, you know, I I think I probably default to technical now. Um. You know, I, I, one of the ways that I uh, describe myself, if, uh, if, you know, I'm in like an icebreaker type situation, we're expected to, you know, do this sort of thing is I think I'm like a bad extrovert, basically, which is like, or like a <laughs> shitty extrovert. In other words, like I'm, I, I like people and I'm like, you know, uh, relatively good time and, you know, like to like to do things that extroverts like to do. But if I look at my habits, I, you know, don't go out all that often. And I like to spend, you know, a lot of time in complete silence programming. And, uh, you know, I think that that's, uh, I think the floor on programming is so high. In other words, if I take two hours in program, I know what I'm getting and it's good. If I take two hours with a person, you know, it depends on who, right? It could be amazing. It could be amazing. It could be frustrating. It could be a waste of time. Um, so the variance is pretty high on the people side and the variance isn't high really all that much at all, especially if you neutral, if you sort of control for energy level and say like, okay, I've got constant energy then programming always delivers. Whereas, um, you know, people, it's a bit more of a two way street. Yes. And you know, technology keeps improving so that we can get faster and more efficient with it. There's not really a prettier for, um, people. So it's, it's really true. And, uh, I mean, I think that that's, you know, not only sort of, do you not, I mean, at every, any given point in time, right. The, the leverage that comes through people is going to be, you know, a little bit, I mean, it can be amazing, but it's, it's, it's going to be, you know, variable at the very least. Um, but you're right that every month that goes by both the hardware gets faster and the, you know, frameworks and tools get better. And so, and that doesn't happen with people at all. Right. So, Absolutely not. Um, so yeah, I, I, I completely agree with that comment. Well, you mentioned frameworks and tools, so I have to ask. So I recall when you were the host of the Ruby on Rails podcast is that you were a big fan of both Rails and Ember. Is that still the case? Yep, still totally true. Um, so we, we, um, uh, we've used Rails as, and we sort of have a, a, a monolith, but only, on, only to the API, right? Okay. So there's a, a JSON API interface that our app provides out to the world, probably has actually I could count, but 220 resources that it exposes, um, you know, I don't know, lots. And uh, then our entire sort of application is built um, 
in M, you know, the front end is built in Ember sort of piggybacking off of that JSON API um, interface. And um, that, you know, that's a, a sort of style of developing that I settled on maybe five years ago or so. And um, I love it more today than I ever have. It's been, um, it's been one of the best sort of technical bets I've made, maybe the best. That's fantastic. So I'm assuming that you were the one who started the application and you've hired on additional people to help maintain it. Is that how that works? Yeah, yeah. So I started it and um, I, I think to this day, I probably have written more lines of code than anyone. <laughs> That's a, that'd be a fun thing to check. Uh, <laughs> but I, I'm going to look. So, <laughs> but I, yeah, I think that, um, uh, I think I've probably written the most and it's really most of the most of the server side of what we do has been written by two of us. And, uh, and oh, maybe I have been surpassed now on the server side by Benjamin. Um, but it, we're about tied, I, I just looked. So, you know, I've written a lot of it and um, another guy, Benjamin Fletcher has written a lot of it. And uh, we've had some other contributors on the server side, but really primarily the two of us. And, um, and then on the, um, on the client side, on the Ember side, um, it's been sort of, I've been the only constant between those teams. Um, we've had a, a different group of people working on the front end. Um, and on that one, I, I sort of built out the, the base of the app and then the frameworks or most of the frameworks that we use. And, um, and then we've had sort of a, a collection of, of people. Milland, like I mentioned before, has worked for uh, since the beginning on this. And then uh, a few other guys, some that'll handle more you know, what you consider sort of more technical things and some that would handle more front end dev, what, what you'd imagine as front end dev things. Not, not to say that front end isn't technical. I just, uh, some people that would do things more about that were visual design centric and others that would just you know handle behavior. Oh, that makes sense. So have you or any of your team been working with any newer technologies that you're excited about? Maybe GraphQL or any other JavaScript frameworks? Um, yeah, we have a couple. So not GraphQL. Um, I kind of made my JSON API bet, and I'm I'm I, I'm sticking to it. Um, you know the the sort of the combination of JSON API resources, which um, I uh, I adopted that very way back when it was brand new. Um, the, the combination of that and Ember going to JSON API as its default um, adapter, uh, sort of serialization format. Um, that really worked, it re really has been an effective way to sort of compose functionality in the client based on, you know, a bunch of individual resources that can be um, used in concert, both, you know, through the individual endpoints and then through includes um, on any of the requests. And so anyways, we sort of made that bet, built up our whole infrastructure around it, and it's it's paid off really nicely. So I haven't gone GraphQL given that. Um, on the front end side, I really love Tailwind. Um, Tailwind just released uh, 1.0 back uh, back last week, and um, oh, I adopted Tail Tailwind had just come out as a project when um, we began uh, work on what sort of has become the primary um, client app for for our product, um, and that was about a year and a half ago. So Tailwind had had just released. I don't know the exact dates, but let's say it was in like November or so of 2017. And um, I knew Adam from the internet and just sort of like to bet on people that I find uh, sort of common sensibilities with. 
and just saw what he did in the very early versions of Tailwind. And it's a like a functional CSS um, framework. And, um, and, and so said, you know, I'm, I'm going to hop on this because I, I thought we could do better than the, the sort of higher level um, frameworks like Bootstrap. And uh, anyways, jumped on Tailwind and we've written it ever since. And it's been amazing. Like I, I, I love it now as much as I ever did. And it's been just fabulous to see how well it's done. I also agree that Tailwind is really fantastic. And one thing that I'm taking away from this podcast is that you're really good at placing bets on technology. So kudos, Sean. <laughs> I don't, I mean, I've had a pretty, a couple of good ones. <laughs> you have. Know? Well, I have, I tell you another one that, that's on my list then is, um, uh, I was trying to, so, so back um, a year and a half ago, sort of the, that moment where I picked Tailwind, the, the situation we were in is that, um, it was clear that we had to have a, a, like a native mobile app. And um, that was a pretty, that's a pretty daunting um, sort of uh, conclusion to come to if you're, you were in my position because our, <clears throat> the, the breadth and the depth of our platform is kind of staggering. It's really, really broad functionality and the details are somewhat intense. And so the idea that, you know, of having to port that to iOS and, and Android, and we'd, we'd certainly have to support both sort of at an equal level of quality. Um, and, you know, being sort of all over the place and having the sorts of users that I mentioned before, it, it just, it felt, um, it felt perilous to me, the choices. And so I, I, I went and I interviewed some people that had done different paths to potentially hire them just to get a feel for, you know, hey, what had they experienced going down different paths just to, just sort sort of like hear in their words if if I bought the trade offs that they were selling, and um, and anyways I, I sort of came to the conclusion after hearing everyone say that you know you you have to go sort of native and and the, the more you embrace the you know the sort of core frameworks of iOS and Android the better, and, and the more I heard it the less I believed that it actually would ever work. Like I just thought how are we ever going to maintain feature parity across you know the web. Um, and it, we're already dealing with sort of responsive web and then also have iOS and Android and keep up with the pace of development. Anyways, long way of saying, I just went searching for, okay, what, what's the current state of having an Ember app be like using it as a hybrid um, to go web and native using, um, you know, something like Cordova. Oh, yeah. And and so there was a library that had just sort of gotten off the ground called Corber which was a bridge between Ember and Cordova. And it like wasn't all that far along. The documentation was like pretty shaky, um, but the guys that behind it clearly knew what they were doing and clearly had like a lot riding on it because they were using it. And, um, and anyway, so I, I sort of built a little proof of concept. I remember it was Thanksgiving weekend of 2017 and I took like two days and uh, said, okay, I, I'm just gonna see if I can like get comfortable enough with this to believe that, that it's the right call. And at the end of that, I said, yeah, I mean, this is the way, like, as long as I can sort of fight through, um, you know, fight through this learning curve and maybe uh, put up with the, with the framework being, or the library being a little bit nascent, um, this is going to work great. And, and actually just last week, we, uh, we, we sort of went out of beta and just publicly released on the app store and the, Google Play, the native version of our platform. And it's it's like great. Like I can't get over how good it is. That's uh, amazing. Well, we'll definitely link that uh, library up in the show notes. That's that's really, I had never heard of that before. So that's fantastic. 
it's like it's one of those things that once you like if you saw our app and you saw it running on like the mobile web and then on on you know a desktop web and then on an iphone and then on an android phone and you just said, wow, that's actually all an Ember app being wrapped and then distributed that way, you'd be shocked how good it is. So anyways, th there we go. You said number one, and I, or uh, one thing, and I gave you a few, but. <laughs> oh, I appreciate that. Those are some really good resources and definitely some strong technology bets, as I was saying. So um, yeah, so Sean, I just wanted to, on a personal note, just thank you for all of the work that you put into the Ruby on Rails podcast. It wouldn't be around if it wasn't for you. And really appreciate having this and really hoping that this podcast goes on for a long time. So how can our listeners follow you? Well, I'm, I'm barely known on Twitter. Um, so that's, that's a good way to follow me. Um, how else? Uh, GitHub? you know, uh, yeah, I'm barely known. I'm barely, basically barely known on anything that I'm, that I'm on. That's, I've that's, always uh, loved that handle. <laughs> well, you know, if, if you're a lousy extrovert, I think that barely known as your handle is like, you know, <laughs> pretty effective. Um, so anyways, yeah, GitHub and, and, and Twitter and, you know, my, my company website lists me as, as the, uh, the contact for things. And, um, I, uh, I'm, I'm always up for, uh, people reaching out. I'm also in, I'm in Chicago and, uh, I, I like to, uh, I like to get together. So if people are around, um, can always hit me up and see if you want to meet for coffee or whatever. Fabulous. Well, thank you so much for taking the trip down memory lane with me. Listeners, we'll talk to you next week. Thanks, Brett.